From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, a Milwaukee native shares her experience with mental health struggles and how she helps others. Then we'll hear one woman's story of healing through nature at the Milwaukee Domes. If you talk to a human being, they'll say, well, if I was you, I would have done this, I would have done that. But if you talk to a planet, they just miss it. They don't judge you. Plus, we'll look back at the time Oriental Drugs was open on Farwell and North in Milwaukee and what it meant to the community. When I saw on the news that it was closing, it was like somebody had died. It really hit all of us. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Milwaukee native Janine Rivers Colburn is a suicide prevention consultant, author, and speaker. Her mental health advocacy stems from her lived experience as a suicide attempt survivor. Rivers Colburn partners with Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee, Mental Health America Wisconsin, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to educate others and share the importance of reaching out for help when you're struggling. She joins me now, and a note to our listeners, this conversation is focused on suicide and suicidal ideations. So to start, what do you think is the most important thing to share with people who rightly so may get, you know, a little intimidated or nervous about this subject, but don't know where to start? Well, what I have learned is that many people look at suicide prevention as preventing someone from attempting suicide right then and there. They think it means coming to the rescue in their momentary crisis. Suicide prevention is so much more than that. Suicide prevention is teaching people the things that they can do, self-care, changing your way of thinking, doing all of that to prevent you from having suicidal ideation, from thinking about wanting to um, end your life, Um, taking you from the mindset of life is dark, that there's nowhere for you to, to go if you are feeling like, I just don't wanna be here. So, and what I'm doing is showing people what true suicide prevention, what it looks like. So you touched upon some of the personal thoughts someone might be having if they're struggling with suicidal ideations. What about tips for someone on the outside who noticed that someone is struggling? And you notice like this goes beyond crisis mode. So say it's not an emergency. What do you think it's important for people to look out for in someone if they even have just an inclination of maybe they're struggling or, hey, they don't seem quite themselves? Suicide is a very uncomfortable topic. People don't want to talk about it. And when they see someone that is struggling and they notice a change in them, a lot of times people are afraid to mention to them. But you have to have that real conversation and be willing to ask them. That is so important. Not to be afraid to ask. Ask them, are you okay? 
How can I help? Because the, some of the signs of someone who is thinking about taking their own life is um, they'll leave you subtle goodbye messages. Thank you for everything that you've done. If I don't see you again. And when you, and when you hear those messages and you see that person's smile turn to just gloom, you should not be afraid to ask them, you know, what's wrong? Is there something I can help you with? What's going on? Don't be afraid to ask. So we have to look for those signs. It's important. So when we're engaging with someone and asking direct questions, how important is how people handle the response to those honest answers and actually following up and taking someone seriously? I can speak from my own personal experience. When I've had someone you know, their, their attitude and their comments to me clearly, clearly shows that they are just not thinking about being here. And I have had instances where people are insulted, they get angry at you and very defensive, and they may not even talk to you. It is important to always connect, connect with that person. Connection is so important. What do I mean? Um, if a person acts that way, give them just a tad bit of space. But how are you doing? Let's go to dinner. How about going to the movie? I understand how you're feeling right now. Just connecting, not trying to fix them. You know, don't try to fix them. That's, that's very offensive because we're not that person. We're not in their shoes. So you have to, I think it's important to build relations, build community with the person, letting that person know that they're valuable. And there's so many little subtle, subtle things that you, that you can do to do that. So switching to coming at it from a person going through a crisis, uh, when it comes to navigating a moment like this that may include suicidal ideations, what are some tools or coping strategies that you've found to be helpful? Teaching people to have a different mindset, to look at things differently, to empower themselves by letting them know what their opportunities are going and also using my experience as a suicide attempt survivor, you know, sometimes I just really cry because at that moment in time when a person is feeling so dark, their darkness may have been darker than mine or lighter than mine, but still there was darkness. It is very important for me to share with them that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that the light that they were given may be different than mine, but the light is there. Everyone has that light. I believe that people were born with that light, but sometimes they lose it. And you have to take the flashlight and walk in front of them and show them where that light is. So I use my own experiences. And the first thing I say is, if I can do it, you can too. And I show them how I went to group therapies. I learned them the true meaning of self-care. It's more than getting your nails done and getting your feet done. It's self-care of the mind and restructuring the way you think is so very, very important. Um, helping them find what their talent skills are because a lot of people don't know. And teaching them to set a goal and then the steps that they can take to reach that goal. So that's, that's mainly what I focus on. 
we're touching upon a bit of the stigmas associated with suicide and suicidal ideations. And one other big area where there's a stigma outside of suicide, but overall mental health is medication and the role it can play. What's your advice for uh, helping people realize that medication is a helpful tool and not something to be ashamed of necessarily if it's something you do need? I consider myself a life experience expert because I've been dealing with this since I was 21 and now I'm 57. So I'm going to tell you the story about me and medication. And it took me a long time not to be ashamed of it. When I was younger, um, when I was 21, I had a suicide attempt and, uh, you know, I tried to take my own life and I survived and I had to go on medication for that. And I dealt with being on medication for years and deciding. Now, first, I want to say that everyone is different. Some people can't do this. This is what I did for me. I decided I wanted to go off my medication. I told my, my psychiatrist, I need to feel what I'm going through. I need to know why I'm, I'm having this thing, anxiety, why I'm so depressed and why I have suicidal ideation. So she took me off, a gra off a gradually and I went years without any medication. And boy, did I have to deal with me. <laughs> it was not easy, but I did it. So why am I saying all this? The moral of the story is that a person should not be ashamed in any way, shape, or form to be on medication if it is going to help them be a better person. But what I can say from my own experience is I think it's important to allow yourself to feel and to know why you are uh, experiencing the emotions that you are and why you're going down the medication. I want you to know that at the age of 56, I decided I needed to go back on medication. I had a lot of things going on with me, um, a lot of things going on with me emotionally and mentally. My life changed. I had, you know, I'm a woman of age that goes through, is going through menopause. <laughs> so can you imagine all those emotions from that, all of the life emotions, me not sleeping and realizing I'm not doing too well emotionally and mentally. Staying in bed until 10 o'clock is not always a good thing when you're used to being up at six because you're depressed. So I went back to my doctor and I am very proud and unashamed to say that I'm back on medication. And I am doing very good. So don't be, if you're out there and you're ashamed to go on medication, don't be ashamed to go on medication if it's going to make you feel better. Do what's best for your mental and physical health. So don't be ashamed if you have to be on medication. Be proud of it because you're setting an example for someone else when you're unashamed. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. What are some ideas for action that you would recommend, no matter where people are at in life, whether they are struggling themselves or perhaps they just want to take steps to be a supporter of other people within their community? One of the things that really hit me and slapped me in the face for Suicide Prevention Month is suicide prevention is everybody's business everybody's business. A lot of people don't realize that because it hasn't affected them. 
It hasn't affected someone close to them. They don't know anyone unknowingly. They don't know if someone has tried to take their own life. So they dismiss it like oh, suicide prevention. Okay, okay. Um, suicide prevention is everyone's business and people can get involved in ways that they never imagined. So one of the things um, is poetry. So if you are suffering from suicidal ideation, writing, you know, writing a journal is, is really important, but putting it in a poetic form is even, I have found more enlightening. Um, learning what true self-care is, is amazing. Self-care, like I said before, is, is, goes beyond the norm of what people think it is. I mean, what about your mind? You want to have self-care of your mind. You have to set boundaries is one of the biggest things. Boundaries to realize you're not Superman or Superwoman, that you have to keep your cup full. Because if your cup is only halfway full, you're giving from part of your cup that you can't give of people and you become overwhelmed. So self-care is extremely important. And for me, sharing my story is suicide prevention. Sharing my story and showing people how to heal their family, heal your children, giving your mom, giving parents an idea of what they can do to heal their family. So it's those things that we don't think about that we can do for suicide prevention. And one of the um, really, really important things is reaching out to um, your legislatures in your area. You know, writing letters to them, knowing, letting them know that you care about funding that's going into suicide prevention. That is how a person can get involved in having real conversations with people. That is suicide prevention. That is ongoing 365 days a year. Well, Janine, I want to thank you so much for uh, your graciousness and sharing your story and your thoughts and, and showing listeners that it is okay to talk about suicide. Yes. And thank you again for the opportunity. Janine Rivers Colburn is a local author, suicide prevention consultant, and speaker. She joined me on Lake Effect in 2021. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, help is available at the Suicide Crisis Lifeline. Call 988. You can find other resources at wuwm.com. For decades, Milwaukee's iconic domes have been a place to celebrate nature and explore distant biomes. For Juanita Ramos, they're much more than that. They're a sanctuary and a place to heal. Ramos is a survivor of domestic violence. For years, she endured emotional, financial, and physical abuse at the hands of her husband. One day, it all became too much. She left out of a second-story window in an attempt to escape. Ramos survived the fall with serious injuries to her foot. She found support and left her husband. And in the months of recovery that followed, she went to the domes daily. Years later, Ramos is an advocate and leader for other victims of abuse. She shares her story of nature and healing with WUWM's Lena Tran. When Juanita Ramos walks into the tropical dome, her face lights up. This, she says, might be her favorite dome of the three. 
It reminds her of her childhood home in Puerto Rico. The heat and humidity are familiar, the colors are a celebration, vibrant pinks and purples, and the plants are dramatic. Palms the size of coffee tables, moss and ferns and vines everywhere. The room hums with life. We see a corpse flower when we walk in. It's the size of a toddler. It hasn't bloomed yet, so its petals are snug around its core like a buttoned-up collar. Oh, look at that, see? Something happens to you, like it just happened to me right now. And then look at this, look at this corpse flower. I just, <laughs> so unique. Wow. This tree here, we used to have about three in the back here. In your childhood home? Yeah. What is it? It's, I don't know how they call it in English, but it's guanabana. It's a, like a white pulp inside, and you take all those, the skin out, and it has little seeds, black seeds. And the taste of the guanabana is like, it's not too sweet, not, I mean, it's just perfect. <laughs> and I can taste it <laughs> just by looking at a tree. I call these rainbows because they got so many colors. To me, it reminds me of fall. They're so intricate. And if you notice, not all the leaves are the same shape or length. They all have something different. And to me, that, that makes it so special. So every, every plant has a, you can create a story out of it, out of every plant out of every flower and it really does something to you your mind really goes away from everything that's really bothering you and you just concentrate and meditate and you can inspire you to talk to your you know to your god more than a decade ago, Juanita would find solace here, doing this very thing. Because of her injured foot, she couldn't go far from home, but she could actually see the domes from her old house. She pointed the house out to me before we walked in together, a brown roof from her past across the busy street. I will come down the stairs because I was living on the second floor. I would sit and sit and come down, not using my legs, but my bottom. Until I got to the bottom of the stairs, then I would just kind of do something funny to grab the uh, wheelchair. And uh, it was painful, but it was worth it. Because <laughs> I was coming over here, and it made, it made a whole difference in my life. And I did that for probably seven months. She said she would come and talk to the plants. And it's kind of like they would talk back and say, it's going to be okay. Things won't always be like this. They were my friends at that time. If you talk to a human being, they'll say, well, if I was you, I would have done this, I would have done that. But if you talk to a plant, they just listen. They don't judge you. They don't tell you, well, next time you better, you know, you know, you, you'll know better, nothing. It was just, okay, here I am, you know. And so that's what I experienced. Yeah. It was like, I had to come every day. 
and sit here and cry and talk to the plants and and just sit down and meditate and I don't know if you've been in there but there when they have different flowers it's like the scent of the flowers it's like you can just close your eyes relax and smell all of that and and it does something to you it does something to your brain because when you go through trauma your head is like pitch dark it just you don't it's like you lose that sense of understanding even understanding yourself Juanita would bring her Bible to the domes she lost herself in prayer in the heat of the desert the colors of the flowers the heady scent of the rainforest the plants she saw were beautiful strong thriving things she wanted to be herself she felt like she was in her own personal Eden was your faith ever challenged in that dark time or did it feel like like you always had that you know what I always I always knew that there's chaos around us no matter what and sooner or later in a big or small degree some of us are going to experience something in life that we don't never wanted to you know experience and so what do you do when something like that happens it's power and choice right so you either sit down get mad angry you blame everybody including god <laughs> or you said okay i'm going to learn something out of this and what i learn out of it I'm going to share it with somebody and maybe help somebody uh, not heal because I don't have the power, but in the sense of healing in the sense of having someone who will listen to you and would not judge you. And I grew up in Puerto Rico and they have a lot of the same plants that I grew up climbing on trees. Can you imagine? You're going through a lot, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh, I remember when I used to climb on those mango trees and go up there. And so your mind starts moving. It starts going back, and, and things that you probably forgot, never talked about it, all of a sudden it comes alive because of what you're going through and what you experienced in the past. So the, the experience in the, in the past and the one now connect and somehow a healing process starts. It took you back to that time before these terrible things happened to you mm -hmm. and to the person that you were mm -hmm. before then. Exactly, and guess what the message was? What? It's gonna be better. It can be the same or even better. And yes, it is. It got better to the point that the backyard, my backyard is full of flowers. Because Even now, Juanita says, the body has a way of remembering things that you don't want to remember. You can when that happens, she comes back here, or heads into her garden in the backyard. There's birds, butterflies, roses, lavender. She can spend hours there. Juanita sees messages everywhere in nature, signs of God's love and design. She tells me about this time that she was in Florida a few years ago. 
and there was a tree that fell because of Maria, the Hurricane Maria, but a few of the roots were in the ground, and the tree was the base for other plants to grow and sort of remind me of me. And so I started to write about, sometimes we fall, but falling doesn't mean that you just die. You can nurture others around you. Like this tree, it had like about 10 different plants. You know those um, spider plants? There were so many on it. And animals like, you know, in Florida, there's all kinds of little animals and they will go in there. And I just wrote a whole thing. <laughs> Durante la tormenta, María, al árbol caído solo le quedaban algunas raíces incrustadas en la tierra. She wrote about God's faithfulness. She believes that every flower is him telling her, I love you, I have a plan. Even when you're in the desert, you are greater than your pain. And although you're in pain, you can help someone else heal. She wrote, even when you fall, you can help others get up. For WUWM, I'm Lena Tran. That was WUWM's Lena Tran and Juanita Ramos. Ramos eventually went to college for the first time and graduated magna cum laude. She had a second career as an early childhood educator. In about 10 minutes, we'll look back at the time Oriental Drugs was open on Farwell and North in Milwaukee and what it meant to the community. But first, we're joined by the trans handyman, TikToker and Wisconsinite, Mercury Stardust. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. TikTok may be better known for its dances and lip syncing, but the platform has also become a haven for DIYers. There are videos on everything from crafting and recipes to gardening and home repair. That's where Mercury Stardust comes in. The Wisconsin TikToker is known as the Trans Handyman, and her platform both helps people learn how to fix up their homes and highlights issues important to the trans community. Stardust released a book this year called Safe and Sound, a renter-friendly guide to home repair. She joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about her work. I am someone who has watched your TikToks a number of times. Uh, Why did you first decide to start doing TikToks, get into this space? Well, I was a burlesque dancer here in tropical Madison, Wisconsin, and a friend of mine said, hey, you should do TikToks to promote your show that's online. And I said, no one's going to watch that. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, and, you know, I got on TikTok for like a few weeks and I was just doing little fun videos. And one day someone posted a video where they needed help with a ratchet strap and they were getting made fun of in the comments. So all I did was post a video in response, trying to help them in a way that I would have wanted someone to help me when I was younger. And it really seemed to resonate with people. And I really enjoyed helping one person. So I kept on doing it. And then uh, I just kept on going. <laughs> Most people who do this work are men. What has it been like for you working in this space as a handy person, especially as someone who has transitioned? It sometimes can be a little bit of an uphill battle, right? Like when I'm in a room, um, more times than not, there's probably more men in that room than any other you know, category of people. Uh, and it can be a little difficult sometimes to get um, a word in edgewise. But what has always really helped me is um, just staying true to who I am. I'm not there to necessarily impress anybody. I'm just there to be who I am. And I know that I'm really good at my job and I know I'm really knowledgeable. And that's always really helped me get through those moments. But yeah, it has been difficult at times. Have there been any obstacles that surprised you? I think when I came out a few years ago and people at the property company that I worked at, everyone was pretty cool with it. But when I would go into tenants' homes, sometimes tenants would um, not want to have me come in. Sometimes they would say, I don't want it to come into my home and say some derogatory terms at me. Those have been difficult. And I think I knew that going in, that was always a chance that could happen. But I didn't realize to what extent people's bigotry would prevent them from seeing that all I want to do is help people and there's no agenda attached to it. Sure. Now, it seems like your TikTok uh, space is a pretty open and welcoming space, but in your work on the day-to-day, -day, would you say that normally people are pretty cool or are people kind of terrible? Well, the, the good thing about being on TikTok now is anyone who works with me, anyone who seeks me out, they know exactly who I am and they know what I stand for. So I don't really work with or work around um, people who might have bigoted views about trans people. People seek me out, and because I am a trans person in this field, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of like, I'm like, I'm not, I'm like their favorite thing to 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 reach out to, right? Like I'm I'm doing quite well because I'm so different in the industry, and because I think differently, and I educate differently, and I do things ultimately not like what the status quo is. People seek out my knowledge rather than just happen to find it. I mean, that makes me think of the first time I saw your TikTok, I went, this is a woman from Wisconsin. You don't get that accent <laughs> from anywhere else. I, I don't know how big TikTok is in the state. I, I assume it's like anywhere else. Do you find you have this new celebrity status here? I, you know, I want to say no, but it, it's a little overwhelming sometimes, <laughs> you know, depending on where I am in the state. Like, the people who are on TikTok, it's overwhelmingly queer people who follow me. But when people recognize me, um, by the very nature of the beast, they're typically people who are, you know, they're an up and up. They're cool with the trans community and the LGBTQIA community. So I don't get too nervous. But every once in a while, I'll be at Home Depot <laughs> or I'll be, you know, at Menards and someone will scream across the aisle, the trans handyman. And I get a little nervous. <laughs> 
<laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, being recognized so openly and loudly as a trans person in public can sometimes be nerve-wracking. Um, but it, it's been a real wonderful thing. People tell me their stories about how I help them all the time, and that's just so wonderful. And what a privilege to have to help so many people. I mean, one of the things that is really interesting about your content, uh, but also, of course, your new book, you focus on a group that most of us have found ourselves a part of at one point or another, renters. What made you want to focus on the needs of renters versus homeowners? Well, my ideology when it comes to activism has always been linked to intersectionality. And in intersectionality, we believe very firmly in order to help one marginalized group of people, you have to help the people who are the most vulnerable. So we often talk about the black trans community being the community we want to help the most. Take that same type of logic and you put that into the homeowner space and you put that into a DIY space. What that end up becomes, it becomes renters. Because if you can help a renter, you can typically, sometimes, most of the time, help a homeowner. Most homeowners have been renters in their life, but most renters will never be a homeowner. And I think that that is a really important distinction. And the reason why I focus so strongly on renters, if I can help them, I can help a lot of people. If I only focus on homeowners, I'm missing an entire group of people that might need my help the most. What are some of the challenges that face renters specifically? Often landlords will be the problem. You know, I'm not necessarily against landlords entirely. I think that there's a lot of landlords who are trying their best to be as ethical and really do care about their tenants. But there are a significant amount of landlords who don't try to have a good, healthy communication with their tenants. And that leads to problems. When a tenant learns that when they ask their landlord for help, there's a very good chance they might not do anything or they're going to yell at them or blame them initially, then the problem becomes that that person who's a tenant won't ask for help next time when there's a larger issue. And that breakdown of communication can lead to a huge headache for me when maybe there's a, a faucet that just keeps on leaking and instead of solving it, they just let it be pushed off and that becomes a massive issue. Or worse yet, when they move out and I'm doing the turnover, um, that could be a huge issue and cost thousands of dollars. And that in turn hurts other tenants. It hurts all the other tenants who are attached to that property management company. Sure. Is is there advice that you find yourself returning to time and again for, for people who are renting? It's always to document everything. Document, document, document. If you're having an in-person conversation with a landlord, yeah, that could be perfect for so many reasons to have that interpersonal relationship. But it's important to make sure that you go back and you email them and you do a recap of everything you talk about. If you talk to them on the phone, make sure that you text them and do the same thing. Having that chain of documentation of what was said, when things will happen and when things have gone awry is so important to protect us legally but also to protect us um, from them and ourselves. As you look at your own experiences, do you have advice for other women, um, other trans women who are interested in handiwork, but leery of being in a space that has been generally dominated by men? This space is filled with jobs where we work alone most of the time. As a maintenance technician, I didn't have to work with a lot of people all the time. It's a great job to be an individual 
to rely on your own skills to help people directly. There are opportunities and chances when we will be working with people who probably don't have our best interests in mind and view us not favorably. But the reality is this, our skill far succeeds people's expectations almost all the time because we often have to be. Women, trans people, LGBTQIA people in the field typically have to be extremely good to get anywhere in this industry. And that often means that um, we impress people around us. So don't allow other people's perception of you to be your reality. All right. Well, Mercury, thank you so much for speaking with me today about your work. Thank you, Joy, for having me. Mercury Stardust is a Madison-based TikToker known as the Trans Handyman, and she spoke with Lake Effects Joy Powers. Stardust's book is called Safe and Sound, a renter-friendly guide to home repair, and it's available now. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for us wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Many Milwaukee natives may remember oriental drugs on the city's east side. We'll explore the history and the ultimate closure of that staple in the community next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Oriental Drugs operated at the corner of Farwell and North Avenue in Milwaukee next to the Oriental Theater from 1929 until 1995. It was a diner, drugstore, and hardware store. It was unique in that you could get everything from a milkshake to a postage stamp. Artist and filmmaker Brooke Maroldi moved to Milwaukee in the early 90s and produced a documentary to capture the essence of that space before it was driven out of business by national drugstore chains. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks to Maroldi about the documentary. When I moved to Milwaukee in 1992, everybody told me, go to Oriental Drugs. I stepped into that place took it all in and said, if Milwaukee can support a place like this, this is the place I can live. And so it was a couple of years of being a customer. I mean, I wasn't an everyday customer. Like some people you'll see in the documentary were there breakfast, lunch, and dinner. People met their future spouses there. It was a way of life for many people, a real community center. Me, I was more on the fringe, but when I saw on the news that it was closing, it was like somebody had died. It really hit all of us. And I remember just calling all these different people I knew 
and everybody was talking about it. And I said, well, God, somebody should do a documentary about this. And I didn't see anybody doing it. And I still felt like a newcomer to Milwaukee. I was a little shy about uh, approaching High, High Eglash, the wonderful owner. And I just thought, well, nobody's doing it. Why don't I? I had the camera. And uh, I sat down with him and his only concern to illustrate what a kind-hearted, generous man he was, is, was he said, I just don't want my customers to be uncomfortable. And I assured him that I would get all the customers' permission before filming them, and that was his only concern. At a time in his life that was probably one of the most difficult passages for him and his family, and the employees who he treated like family, he was kind and generous enough to let me go in every day and make the video. And that's what I did. It's really amazing how many voices you got in there. You got, you know, people talking, tearing up about the pharmacy closing and not having any place to, you know, people not having any place to go and people who would have stories about Christmas, the staff singing carols to them and stuff like that. I mean, you can get a sense of it watching your documentary, but for people who have never set foot, how would you describe the vibe at that place? Like what comes immediately to your head? To me, everyone was accepted there. I mean, you can have a local celebrity sitting there, sitting next to somebody who is homeless. You saw all ages, like younger people thought it was hip. Older people found it as a place to escape being all alone in their little apartments. So it served as a real community center. And it didn't have any special interests attached to that. There was no, I mean, Certainly people talked about politics, but it wasn't like it is now where it was so polarized. And I think that was the most striking thing about it was how welcoming it was to everybody. Not only that, I mean, you could buy your postal stamps, you could get hardware, pick up your prescription, sit down and get a burger, all kinds of crazy stuff there. Real plants, you name it. There is a sociologist called Ray Oldenburg, and he talked about third places. And those are places that aren't home. They're not work, but they're like that third place that you can go where people know you and you can socialize. And I think when he wrote that theory, he this was probably exactly the kind of place that he was referring to, right? Yeah, and I don't see a lot of places like that anymore. Um, Yeah, there's coffee shops, but a lot of them tend to be kind of trendy or high-end, and they are geared toward a certain demographic. That is what I really think was unique about the place, was that it was all-inclusive, yeah. 
with Oldenburg, he had like a few main principles. Conversation is the main activity. You might be eating, drinking, or doing something else, but conversation is key. There's a home away from home where you find regulars, people who sort of root there. The mood is playful. Wit is prized. It's not like young or old, and there's no barrier to sort of entry. Right now, what's sitting in that spot, I don't know if it was there before you left Milwaukee, but um, the Crossroads Collective, it's kind of like a hip eatery food hall. How would you describe the difference between a place like that and a place like Oriental Drugs? There's no comparison because, first of all, what's there now is all about eating, and it's all about a certain demographic that it's appealing to. With Oriental Drugs and places like it, there there were so many needs met there. And one of the things that was really cool about the design of the counter was it's, it wasn't circular. I don't know how you would describe that counter. It was like all these different U-shaped, so people were forced to look at each other. People were forced to be next to each other. And I used the word force, but it didn't feel forced. It was um, very natural and open in that respect. I, I can't compare it to anything. And I've been traveling quite a bit. I haven't seen anything quite like that that's new, that's been created in the last 10 or 20 years even. And um, it's it's almost sad that a place like that couldn't get onto the National Register of Historic Places because it is part of our history. And once that's gone, it gets wiped out forever and all you have left is older people talking about the good old days. Do you think that anything that the fact that we're in a technological age now, I mean, because Oriental Drugs kind of closed up right before the internet era, right? And I mean, it was even before computers were that widespread and certainly not cell phones and, and all the other knickknacks and gadgets that we have now um, with people staring at their screens. I mean, that just didn't happen there, right? So do you think part of it can potentially never be replicated? You're probably right about that because even if you did have those kinds of counters where people are sitting next to each other or across from each other, would they be talking to each other or would they just be looking at their phones? I mean, I've had plenty of situations with friends I haven't seen in years and I'm sitting across from them and they're checking their phones and I'm like, hello? I'm here. I haven't seen you in three years. Look up. Look around. And that that would be a, a sad state if like the a place like that did exist, but nobody's taking advantage of the potential human contact, especially since we've been deprived of human contact for over two years. To what would you ascribe the magic of oriental drugs. Why does the oriental pharmacy hold such a special place in Milwaukeeans' hearts? 
Well, I think it's a part of Milwaukee history, not only Milwaukee history, but uh, American history that's gone. The whole age of a mom and pop anything, whether it's a mom and pop, you know, clothing store. When have you been to one of those? Unless it's like a very high price boutique. Maybe that's part of it too, is the accessibility financially. I mean, uh, Milwaukeeans are known as very fiscally responsible, shall we say. And, you know, you could get an endless cup of coffee there for 99 cents. So there's that kind of availability financially. Um, but, the, you know, how do you put that spark into a bottle and replicate it? I don't know that you can today. And maybe that's part of it is that no one has been able to recreate that sense of uh, community while fulfilling real needs. People need to get their prescriptions filled. People need to get a cup of coffee or, you know, some little radiator part bit that only an old hardware store would have. So the needs are fulfilled, but without breaking the bank. And then you have to come down to the training that is really in, embedded in the employees, which was friendliness just friendliness and helpfulness. And um, I know with a lot of businesses, employees aren't invested in their jobs. It's just a job. And they're gonna go somewhere else in two or three months. Whereas I know some of the employees, they were like little celebrities in Milwaukee. People would see them on the street. It's like, oh, you're the hardware guy. <laughs> at the Oriental Drugstore, hey, you're the guy who works behind the counter. And that is, that is a little part of that magic right there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Oh, gosh, you bet. It's a nice to walk down memory lane a long time ago. Brooke Maroldi is an artist and filmmaker who made the documentary Death of a Corner Drugstore about Oriental drugs here in Milwaukee. She spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver last year, and you can also hear the bubbler talk about the store at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Join us again tomorrow at noon for another edition of Lake Effect right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.